Welcome to Fraud Busting. I'm Tracy Brown, the Fraud Busting Body Language Expert. I've spent the last 20 years reading people, uncovering secrets hidden in plain sight to find the truth in crimes, politics, and billion dollar business deals. It's time to dive in so you can beat the fraudsters at their own game and build your bottom line. White collar crime investigator and former government prosecutor, Lloyd Ed by Merrill visits fraud busting today. I really liked our talk. We'll talk all about whistleblower and criminal motivations and how good people end up doing illegal things for the good of the company. She'll also chat about the differences in her approach when investigating fraud in the corporate versus government sectors and reveal the most simple way to minimize fraud in your company. Enjoy. Lloydette, thank you so much for coming on Fraud Busting. It's just a thrill to have you here. Thanks for having me, Tracy. I'm delighted to be here. Now, you're in London, and we got connected um, through a friend of ours, a mutual yeah. um, connection, Kelly Paxton, who's who's been on Fraud Busting. I think she might have been my first interview of someone that I didn't know ahead of time. So, um uh anyway so that's how i know you're cool is because you know kelly so but you have Kelly's cool yeah she is and uh but you have a pretty interesting background for yourself and you're you're a, i'm gonna see if i get this right white collar crime investigator you're a lawyer government yeah. prosecutor and yeah. and you focus on corporate investigations now what did i miss pretty much nothing you got it all in there I, the only thing I would say is that I'm a former government prosecutor. Oh, okay, right, right. Because um, yeah. you probably make more working outside of the government. <laughs> so, little, yeah. Okay, all right, just a little. Okay, so let's let's jump let's jump in. I'm gonna turn it over to you. Tell us what do you do all day? Gosh, that's an interesting one um, because my world is pretty diverse. Um, it can involve talking to clients about prices. Something's come up, like for example, a client might call uh, or send me an email saying they need to have an urgent call with me um, because they've had a whistleblower report through their hotline, or it might be that they've uncovered something via an audit report of some kind, and they need to basically get a feel for what exactly is going on and how much of a issue it is or an issue it is for their organization so that's part of what I do is filled in those types of calls the other part of my work is really around thought leadership so really trying to help investigators that are out there in both in-house organizations as well as private investigators helping them with their skills so I put out quite a lot of stuff on LinkedIn in relation to some of the tips and the tricks because I'm kind of poacher turned gamekeeper Mm -hmm. um uh, <laughs> having had the experience of working in government there are some things and some insights that I have um that I think are useful and so I try to share quite a lot of that um with my LinkedIn audience and my followers but also I do quite a lot of work with international development agencies anti-corruption commissions training their investigators training their lawyers on effective investigations and also effective prosecutions so wow. I still have okay. kind of a thought in my old world um, through my work on kind of the international development area. Wow. Okay. So we have a lot to unpack there. So let's talk about some of these calls you get from whistleblower or like people who have blown the whistle 
Um, what's what's the craziest one you've you've heard? Well, I don't think any of them are crazy, but I think one of the issues that I've had to deal with recently was where somebody had reported an issue to a law enforcement agency and they were kind of like, well, I sent them these documents. I told them about this issue with my company and they didn't do anything about it. Oh. They ignored me. Uh-huh. And I've got evidence of criminality. I've got evidence of, you know, people paying bribes, et cetera, et cetera. But no one's bothered to get back to me. And that can be quite a difficult situation to be in because obviously you don't know necessarily what's gone on between the whistleblower and that law enforcement agency or the regulator. You don't know about the communication. So you have to be quite careful about how you advise them. But oftentimes that's an issue where people say, well, I, I've sent something off and no one, no one's come back to me. Uh-huh. What's happened? Are they not serious about prosecuting these types of crimes or investigating my claims? Mm-hmm. And one of the things is because I have the perspective of being a former government prosecutor, um, I think that it gives me an opportunity to say to people also that, listen, Number one, just because you sent something in, you blew the whistle or you provided a a law enforcement authority with some information, um, doesn't mean that they're ignoring you. They have a ton of information that comes in every single day. Yeah. People are reporting all kinds of things from the granny who's been defrauded of 500 pounds and things that the SFO, the serious fraud office should investigate or the National Crime Agency, which is our kind of uh, um, FBI, they should investigate to the multi-million pound issue. So it takes a while for these organizations, number one, to go through the triage process of identifying Mm -hmm. what's actually important, what's actually valid, what's for us or what's for another government department or another agency. And also, you know, just because you say something or you blow the whistle on an issue, that has to be tested. So there's an issue around credibility. Oh, oh so you well, kind of have to break that down to people as well and say, listen, it's not necessarily that, that, that they're ignoring you. There might be a number of different factors at play. Let's talk about that credibility issue, because I imagine that there are a lot of people out there who just have an ax to grind and want to cause problems <clears throat> for, for someone. And so how, how do you test that out? Like, what's the, what's the rule of thumb there? Okay, so I'm going to explain it in two ways. I'm going to tell you about how I would test it out if I was a government lawyer when mm-hmm. I was in my former role as a prosecutor. Uh-huh. Um, and as I said, we get a ton of this type of information in um, from a variety of different sources. But if I got something in on my desk, or uh, you know, that I actually thought there is has some wheels or it's got some legs, you know, some something to it. Mm-hmm. One of the first things that I would try and understand is what is this person's motive for coming to us? Right. Now let's talk about that. Cause, um, cause one of the things we talked about in our, in our pre-call is about not only the motive of the, of the whistleblower, but also the motive of, of the, um, criminal, right. Or the, or, um, uh, uh what do they call it potential criminal yeah, <laughs> so, like suspect yeah suspect yes yeah. that's the, sorry it's early here it's very early it's in okay. this case. <laughs> you're doing great <laughs> so, so let's let's talk a little bit about that since we're kind of here motives of whistleblowers what do you think um for many whistleblowers, their motives are genuinely, because actually before I say what the motive is, what I think potential motives are, I think I want to say this. Whistleblowers take a huge step often 
when they decide to blow the whistle. Yeah. Because it can mean the end of their career, not just their job in that organization, it can oh. be the end of their career. They could be blacklisted. They can never work in that organization again or in that sector. Um, it could be something that affects their own personal safety, their family safety. So there are lots and lots of things play. So it's a huge step for anybody to take. And, and most whistleblowers genuinely blow the whistle because they have seen something that they believe is egregious, is wrong, it's criminal, it's unlawful, or it's unethical. And they want to bring that to attention. And often the reason why they blow the whistle externally is because the internal mechanisms haven't worked. Oh. They've tried to, yeah, they've tried to come and tell, be it supervisors, be it their compliance department, be it their legal department. They've tried to raise it through the organization and that has not been successful. They've either been ignored or they've been shut up or penalized as a result of raising that. And that is what triggers their decision to go to the SEC or to go to the SFO or, or any other law enforcement or regulatory body. So, so the, the primary motivation is that they actually want to do the right thing. So, so it's like, it's like an overwhelming sense of something's not right here. Yeah. Yeah. And, that, and that, that, has is, to, that has to be pretty strong. I would think. Yeah. Sometimes people see stuff, bad stuff happening and they, not my business, you right. know, I'm here, I'm just going to get my paycheck and I'm going to go home. I don't want to get involved in any drama. So it does take, I think, a particular type of person to blow the whistle. But if you talk about some of the other motivations, for example, that some whistleblowers do have, is that they have possibly an axe to grind. Uh, when I say an axe to grind, please tell me if I'm using anything that is um, an anglicized phrase that might not <laughs> translate well for your audience. But <laughs> say, what does that mean? <laughs> but they might have an axe to grind. They may also, you know, for example, it might have been they've been passed over for promotion, mm -hmm. they've been recently disciplined. And the thing about it is this, Tracy, the two motives are not necessarily in contradiction with each other. Somebody can have that motive of, I've seen stuff, I've seen bad stuff happen, and I want to bring that to the attention of the right people, mm -hmm. while also having an axe to grind. Oh, they're not, wow. they're not in this alignment. So they can be mutually exclusive. Yeah, but you have to, and that's the point is as investigators, you have to understand all the motives. What are the motivations that makes this person on this day decide to speak up? Wow, okay, so then when it comes to credibility, how do you, how do you get to the bottom of that? I mean, because if one person knows there's a problem, there's probably more people know there's a problem. Yeah, you've touched on it exactly, which is all about substantiating somebody's account. Mm -hmm. So a whistleblower is an important piece in the puzzle, okay? But there are very few investigations, especially criminal investigations that are, are conducted by law enforcement organizations that are going to be based just on a single whistleblower's account. What, as a, gov as a former government prosecutor, what I would be looking to do is to substantiate that with some other information. I want right. to be able to get information from other sources that enable me to verify what this person has said. Mm -hmm. In that very, you know, um, that phrase, trust but verify. Right. I want to first of all establish what their motives are. I want to know what access they have to grind. 
I want to know what skeletons they have in their cupboard or cupboards. Yeah. Are they, <laughs> have they had, <laughs> you know, whether it's their personal cupboard or their work cupboard or wherever, I want to know as much as I can about that person. Mm-hmm. Because if I'm going to set out on an investigation based on something they've told me, I want to know everything that I can about them and what is driving them to make these allegations. And so, you know, as a government prosecutor, what I'd be looking at, first of all, are things like, I want to run a background criminal check on that person. Mm-hmm. I want to have a look at their disciplinary record. I want to know whether, for example, that, you know, even things like, have they had anything in the workplace that might be used to discredit them? Oh. And so it's but- about an issue of character. Are they dishonest? Have they ever been accused of dishonesty and been found guilty? If you have, that's a huge block. That's a huge block. If the person is a reformed character, I'm thinking about what this case is going to look like when I take it to court. And the defense are going to beat my witness up over the head yeah. with all of these claims about their, about their honesty. Mm-hmm. And so you have to really do your background checks and you have to do as much as you can to understand those motives, those drivers. And it is the basis of that that you determine how credible a person is and what the information they've given you, what weight you can add to that, what weight you can give to that information. Wow. Now, have you ever had a whistleblower that you discredited where you're just like, no, you're full of it and we're not doing this at all? Not totally discredited, but at some point, yes, you, you, there, there have been those instances where you're, you've seen the material that they've provided and you've kind of gone, thanks, but no thanks. Right. Oh um, my gosh. But, but again, that's not a decision that you take lightly. And that's what I was saying earlier about, you know, when somebody was asking me recently about, you know, I sent some information away to a government department and they didn't hear back. Mm-hmm. Not just a matter of dismissing them out of hand, because we, even those decisions we take quite carefully. You know, if I'm talking as a corporate investigator, I'm not going to dismiss any whistleblower's account out of hand. I am going to pursue a particular line of, of investigation but I might not necessarily open a full-blown investigation and spend thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds of, you know, of resources on right. that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make sure that, and if I identify things that I think disqualifies that person or discredits their account, then I'm going, I want to do that as early on in the yeah. process as mm-hmm. possible. I don't want to waste time or money and get down the line and then realize, mm, wish you hadn't done that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You're not, okay. Quite, you're not quite up to scratch. So, so, so let's say you have a credible whistleblower, you get into a case. And, and one of the things that I found fascinating is that um, you, you, you mentioned when we chatted before that, that these, some of these cases can take years and years and years to, to investigate. And so, which makes sense, right? Cause it's all about cooking the books and hiding yeah. things and moving money around at, at, at what point well, I want to talk about the motivations of people that, that do that, but I also want to talk about like there, there's a law of diminishing returns as far as investigation goes with finding the exact amount of money that's lost. Like at a certain point, don't you just say we got beat and then because you're never going to get the money back anyway, right? I mean, the, the, where's the line of how far you take investigations? I guess before I answer that, I guess the question is, are you asking me as a corporate investigator now let's let's yeah let's let's say corporate yeah let's say corporate now well you can answer two ways right Mm because one is is 
is government level, which is a different thing than, than corporate, right? So yeah, let's take it two ways. Okay, so let's go with, first of all, as a corporate investigator, absolutely, there is a law of diminishing returns. And so I think, you know, one of the things is oftentimes when you start an investigation, you're normally instructed by the audit committee of an organization, if it's a multinational corporation, or the general counsel, or the chief compliance officer, and you will have a scope. And so you have to operate within the scope that you've been given. Now, you might need to broaden that as your investigation proceeds. But I think as a corporate investigation, you're always mindful of where the direction of the investigation is going, how long you think it's going to take you to get to the end of it, because there are financial pressures, Yeah. not in terms of money for the investigation alone, but a company that's focusing on an internal investigation, that's resources that could be deployed elsewhere. Yeah. And so you really have to, it comes down to, again, to re-planning at the outset, Obviously, an investigation that is um, that you start as a corporate investigator, you start off with one thing and then you end up with five different lines of inquiry. Yeah. But again, you can't go off and run your own multi-year, four or five year investigation. You have to kind of make sure that you're working within the confines and the constraints that you've been given in your instructions. Mm. And if you need to expand that scope, then you need to have a discussion with those instructing you about how the scope should be expanded, why it should be expanded, and what the positive outcomes of that expansion will be. Because if the company can't see a point to that, then I, you know, we're done. Right. You know, we, we've got to a particular point. We think we understand what the issue is. We think we've uncovered where the problem lies. Wrap it up. Yeah, yeah. And okay. And that's so there's always a tension there. There's always a tension. Absolutely. Now, now as a government investigator, do you have different uh rules, different guidelines? Well, tell me about that. I think you do have the same tensions because Uh obviously you have your direct, like for example, in my old job, you have the director of the organization who's like, come on, we gotta get this case moving. There's pressures, you know, Uh internal pressures. But I think you do have a bit more freedom to follow different lines of inquiries. And with, you know, as a former government prosecutor, there was there's not necessarily a defined scope, as it were, when you first start your investigation. When a case comes in, you are the, you know, you and the case team together define that scope. Okay. Um, And then you go down the lines of where you think this investigation should go. But you also have the freedom to follow what we call reasonable lines of inquiry okay and I think that you know I'm emphasizing on the reasonable because there could be lots of different lines of inquiries that you can pursue what is reasonable in the circumstances and so there is even in that those tensions because oftentimes we have to have regular case evaluation meetings um, and those meetings are with our superiors okay this case has been going on for 18 months how much progress have we made you know, where are we at with interviews? Where are we at with identifying suspects? Where are we mm-hmm. at with potential charging decisions, making a decision on indictments? Where are we at on all these different things? And so if you're following blindly, not blindly, but following 15 different threads, it's very difficult to bring the case in and direct it in a particular way. So those same tensions apply, but I think you get to control the scope a lot more in government than you do if you're a corporate investigator. Oh, interesting. Well, you know, I just uh, went out to happy hour um, 
with uh, the head of fraud investigations at probably the world's largest retailer, a uh, place where we've wow. all been. And um, he said for a case, uh, for him, for a case to go past three weeks, mm. um, he has to get special permission. So that, yeah. so they, like they end up taking a lot of losses just because yeah. of, I think what you said yeah. of just the resources. Yeah. Um, because it's, it's a lot to, get in there and find out really the exact number so so they may not even really know the number um that that they end up losing like daily or or with, with any with any case yeah I mean that's that and again I, I completely understand that I, I I understand the tensions I understand the pressure that comes from above in terms of moving on I actually just wrote a piece actually I finished it today and it's going to be published in a couple of weeks but for the FCPA blog precisely on this issue of organizations um, kind of lurching from investigation to investigation to investigation. And I think when you're a massive multinational company, you're always gonna have issues. You're gonna have stuff coming through your hotline. You're gonna have things, HR issues. You're just dealing with people, okay? But in terms of the significant investigations, it can be unhealthy for an organization to just lurch from investigation to investigation, from crisis to crisis without really pausing and thinking about what are the root causes of these issues that we're seeing. Because sometimes you can be so quick to close that investigation off and move on that you're not really dealing with the root problems and the long-term issues. Oh, and right, so right. I do think that's a conversation that we need to have because as I was saying in this article, investigations, are they're not a panacea. They're not going to solve systemic issues. Right. They're going to give you short-term solutions, but you're still going to have your long-term problems. Right. Oh, interesting. That is interesting. So speaking of long-term problems, let's get back to um, motivations of the criminal, right? Or the, or I don't know if we want to go so far as to call him a criminal. Well, you know what? Let's do it because we're not necessarily politically correct here on the podcast. So, um, <laughs> so what are you, what are you seeing? Like what's, what's out there? Cause in, you know, we have like the triangle of fraud, which is, you know, um, rationalization and need yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But what, what are you seeing out there on the streets? Motivation sometimes is a, an interesting word because it is to do with money. Oh yeah. But what you find actually is really interesting in a lot of white collar crime cases, um, some of the cases I've investigated as a government lawyer, but also actually in, in, the cor in my new world, the corporate world, is that sometimes people have no financial gain. Really? They have no gain. They do it for the company. They do it because they, they want the company to, to succeed. They do it because they are, you know, they're really dedicated to what they think their job is. Uh -huh. And this is the way that things have always been done. So and wait, so, so, you know, so we pay commissions. Let's dig into that a little bit. So yeah. So they, so they do things for, okay, so let's, for the company. So I would think if someone was going to do a, be a fraudster, they would take money from the company, but then you said, do it for the company. So, okay. You flipped it on me here. Right. Let's, what do you let's got? Talk, let's, let's break that down. And I'll okay. take it from my experience as a, as a government, as a former government prosecutor. Okay. Don't forget that when we talk about economic crime and white collar crime. You're talking about fraud, but you're also talking about bribery. Mm -hmm. You're talking about money laundering. You're talking about a whole range of different types of economic crime. Mm -hmm. And I have seen in my career that there are people who 
under, who pursue these types of crimes, especially things like bribery, paying bribes, uh -huh. especially things like, um, you know, uh, doing things that they know are unethical, but also potentially illegal. Mm -hmm. And they do that often, in some cases, they do that because they come into a system and they come into a company that's already rotten. Okay, so I'm thinking about, thinking about I prosecuted these types of companies. Okay, there's already a, a, a rotten system. There's uh -huh. already a way that things were done. And so when people who are even good people come into those organizations and they're told, well, we pay X amount in commission to win contracts, mm -hmm. they don't question that. Because they call they it commission, not a bribe. Commission. You know, they don't question that. They think, well, that's the way things are done. Uh -huh. And they go ahead and do that. And then at some point later on, maybe five years, maybe a year, maybe 10 years, they find themselves being investigated like someone like me. Uh-huh. So the motivation there was never money. Never money. It's actually about systems and controls and how things are done and culture. Uh-huh. And they and people find themselves in those situations and don't feel strong enough and brave enough to go, come on. You're saying uh, it's commission. Why are we five? And why are we doing this? And why don't we stop? Uh-huh. Well, if <laughs> so you call it commission. One element. Yeah, if you call it commission, it sounds legit. And people can persuade themselves uh -huh. as well that what they're doing is lawful. Like the mind is a really powerful thing. Yeah. Like people can absolutely persuade themselves that this, there's no problem here. This must be good. This must be fine because the CEO is doing it. The CFO is doing it. Everyone's doing it. So maybe it's okay. Huh. Okay. It's okay. So, so, so that's one element. And then when we talk about fraud, obviously, yeah the main motivation for most economic crime is financial gain, uh -huh. okay? Most people want to get money and that leads to status, that leads to opportunities, et cetera, et cetera, because there is a correlation between wealth and power. Oh yeah. And so for many people, you know, when we look at people like, for example, um, you know, these, day, these traders, there was a case in the UK about maybe I think about seven or eight years ago where there was a trader from UBS that basically ended up losing UBS about $2 billion oh. in trades, yeah. Uh -huh. And he was prosecuted um, for his actions uh, because they found that, you know, that he'd actually committed crimes. But he was, you know, at the time there was a culture within that organization of risk-taking. There was a culture of, you know, he was making money. When he was making money, he was the big guy, you know. So there uh -huh. was a status thing that came with it. There was a wealth thing, i.e. bonuses, et cetera, et cetera. And then when things went really badly, he was prosecuted. But there was a culture within that organization that allowed him to do what he did. Wow. So so what was he doing? Can you Do you know a little bit more about it? It was the way he was putting the trades on, he kept putting on, uh, I can't kind of remember the exact um, detail of how he was trading, but basically he was adding extra onto each trade, but it wasn't like I'm adding $50 per trade for yeah. every other trade. I'm adding 50 million. Yeah. But every time he lost money, he would move positions and trade something else and then put more money into that trade because he was hoping if that came good, then he would be in a position where he would um, all his all his previous losses would be gone. Oh wow! So he was hedging his bets here and there. He was hedging over and over and over again, and huh. he ended up losing the organization some two two. I think it was two billion dollars. 
Oh, man. Um, it was a huge amount of money. It was a huge scandal. He was prosecuted. He spent time in jail. Um, but like I said, the, the, he was not the only guilty person. Oh, wow. But he took the fall. He's not the only guilty person because the organization kind of allowed it to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Okay. Okay. So, um, what else do we need to know here about um, what companies can do, like challenges that are out there uh, to like help themselves not need someone like you? <laughs> out of a job? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm very happy to always help and offer tips because we never want to be in that situation. One of the things that I harp on about all the time is that an internal investigation, which is big enough, will be a massive crisis for that organization. Nobody wants to be in crisis mode. But I think some of the things that I would say is number one, make sure that your organization is actually living up to its values, mm -hmm. living up to its principles. And that sounds really airy fairy. Doesn't but it? in this day and age of, you know, we've got things like, you know, individuals who choose employers who are ethical, who would choose, you know, they'll choose an organization that is ethical versus one who's gonna pay them 20,000 more. There's some statistics that came out of business schools that show exactly that, that MBA graduates are choosing organizations that are more ethical, more value driven than somebody who's gonna pay them a big paycheck. So I think there's something there about living up to your values, but also I think in terms of practical things, make sure that you have the resources in-house, if possible, to investigate matters and to do that quickly. Mm -hmm. And make sure that your employees and the stakeholders in your organization see that you're taking action. Oh, that's pretty huge. Because if they don't see that, actually what that does is that it empowers others to engage in unlawful practice and engage in unethical practices. So there is a thing about storytelling. There's a thing about making sure that your organization is constantly, um, when there are issues that have been raised and they've been dealt with, that you're sharing that across your entire workforce so that they can see examples of bad behavior, but they can also see examples of how that's been tackled and dealt with. So I think that's a really, that's a really important thing. But I think one of the other things that organizations should do is that they should keep up to date with what's happening in terms of the legal landscape. Yeah. Because in the UK, for example, you know, we've had the Bribery Act, which really changed the game in terms of prosecution, investigation and prosecution of um, bribery and corruption issues. We've also had, you know, the Criminal Finances Act, which basically, again, changed the game in relation to tax evasion issues. And we're seeing a lot of um, forward movement towards a, a crime or, or criminalizing, basically for corporate criminals, criminalizing failing to prevent economic crime. Now, if that comes into force, organizations are going to have a massive burden on them to make sure that they don't allow their employees to commit economic crime. Oh, wow. So it's really around understanding what, what's coming ahead, you know, what the legal landscape is looking like and how do you counter that? One more thing that I want to cover is because you've, you've done a lot of interviews with accused business people and you said you use a lot in body language. They all have a attitude about, I mean, these are six, quote successful people. So what do you, what do you see when you get someone in the interview room 
to like because they're different than like uh, someone who like what we were just talking about who would break into someone's house yeah. right like yeah. what what are you seeing so i think first of all there is a real um sometimes an indignation like why am i here how dare you especially if you're interviewing somebody who is very senior oh yeah um sometimes it you know they can come to the interview really quite indignant about the fact that you have dared to take them away from running their multinational corporation or their very very successful uh-huh. you know private business and you're asking them these questions and insinuating that they might be involved or have been party to some kind of criminality uh-huh. even if you're not the very fact that they've been interviewed by a law enforcement agency can be a very now Um, (laughs) how do you how do you pick up lies what's your because everybody has one or two little things they like to lean on for deception detection what are yours i look at everything i look at the entire frame i look at how they respond to the question i look at how they're moving their body i look at their how they're moving their hands across the table i'm looking for grip on tables i'm looking at um you know, eye movements, I'm, I'm looking at their entire, and that's why, again, by the way, when you are conducting these types of interviews, you should never do it on your own. Even when you are conducting it for corporate, it should always be two interviewers, if possible. Why, because, why do you say that? Because you can't pick up everything on your own. Because if right. you're asking the questions, as well as making notes, as well as picking up body language, it just doesn't work. Right. You're just going to miss things, okay? And so there should be a first interviewer who is leading the interview, asking the questions and just focusing on that mm-hmm. and focusing on that interaction between themselves and the person being interviewed. And then you should have a second interviewer who's picking up anything that you might have missed, who's got potentially additional questions to ask, but also who can spend a bit more, who's taking notes as well, but also who can spend some time looking at that body language. Yeah. Huh? So, a recent matter that I was dealing with, um, we were interviewing some uh, an individual, and was they were a wit- there was pot- they were potentially a witness to this issue, um, and I was watching their body language very carefully, um, and during the during the interview, he kept using a particular phrase over and over again. Oh, what was the phrase? He just kept saying something like. So basically, basically, and every sentence would be punctuated by basically. Yeah. <laughs> and so as I was writing my notes out, I kept writing each time, basically, basically, basically. Yeah. And I thought, this is like, it, was just, it was just a way that he spoke. We all have ways that we speak and mannerisms, but his, for some reason, I picked that up. And so later on, we have to have an interview with somebody who we think might be the whistleblower uh-huh. in this case. And this was sort of, this person is using exactly the same phraseology. Oh, so would so, you? So I, I, my, at that point, I, I had a strong suspicion that they were one and the same person. Wait, wait a minute. So did you interview him on the phone? No, in person. So the first, the first, the first time I interviewed them, it was in person. And I was looking at their body language and I was looking at listening to what they were saying. I was taking uh-huh. notes. Uh-huh. Um, and then I picked up this particular phraseology that they would use every time they spoke. Uh-huh. Then 
we had we had an anonymous whistleblower in this case and when we then had because obviously we all went remote um when we had a, a subsequent interview with the whistleblower uh-huh. i noticed that the whistleblower was using the exact same phraseology before every sentence wait hang on hang on okay so you had you you interviewed someone who was a suspect no no not a suspect there were a, a member of the of there were an employee oh an employee at that point at that point, and this was as a corporate, at that point, we didn't know who the identity of the whistleblower. Oh, wow. We didn't know anything about that person. Uh-huh. We didn't know, um, you know, they had just filed a, a complaint through the hotline and, um, and we had been engaging with them for a period of time. And then obviously we, we had these in-person interviews and this particular person, the way that they spoke and the phraseology that they used and how often they used it stuck stuck in my mind I remember writing the notes out exactly as they were speaking and then we subsequently had another interview with the anonymous whistleblower and that person was using the exact same phraseology in the same way as the employee that we had interviewed a few months earlier oh really so so this was was like like a zoom interview without a camera then yeah, exactly. exactly. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, we use like a teleconference line or whatever, uh-huh, secure uh-huh. line. But it, so, so it's you know, and of course we, we we didn't disclose that person's identity to anybody because they didn't want to be known. But myself and my co-investigative counsel, I knew without a shadow of a doubt that this person was one and the same. Wow! The way so- they spoke was exactly, and th- that intonation and the pause. And the phraseology was exactly the same. So then, so the whistleblower wanted to be kept anonymous. Mm. And so what did that mean for the investigation that you figured it out? Did it mean anything? Not really. I mean, ultimately that person wants to be kept anonymous. So you uh-huh. don't disclose that information. Um, and ultimately you don't, you don't, until they've confirmed to you that they are X, you don't have that information confirmed, uh-huh. right? You only think you know who this person is and ultimately for me because I I had seen the pattern in speech I knew it was one and the same person I was like 95% sure it was the same person oh wow but it didn't it didn't change the course of our investigation it didn't drive it in a in in one direction or another it's just that we had a potentially an idea of who that person was oh wow so so um what, what do you do when you catch someone lying in one of your uh, interviews? Do you let it go and use it later? Or like, what do you do? No, you never let it go. But I think, you know, we, um, I think as corporate investigators, you, you, you approach interviews like that differently because I think government investigations and can be, you can be quite confident. You can be, obviously we're always nice. We're always professional as government investigators. You're always professional. Um, you're not there to start banging the table like you see in the movies. It's not yeah, crazy. Yeah. You know, we're all normal people um, and it's all very cordial. Um, but there are times where you can push people a little bit more because obviously it's a criminal investigation. So this is serious, you know, yeah. someone could go to jail here. Um, so I'm much more likely to be a little bit more forceful, a little bit more assertive if I think I've caught someone in a lie and I will get them to repeat what I think that lie is and then potentially put to them some additional information and see how they react to that. Oh, because now are you doing the investigative technique where you don't ask a question unless you already know the answer? 
good investigation practice. Uh-huh. You shouldn't ask a question. And actually, I'm, I'm an advocate. You know, I'm, a, I'm a lawyer that's used to being in court. So absolutely, if I'm cross-examining somebody in court, when I ask the question, I know the answer. Yeah. I think sometimes when you're conducting investigations and you're interviewing people, um, there are some questions that you ask that you don't know the answer to. Uh-huh. You just don't know. Because that's part of this process of uncovering what you think may have gone on. So as a government lawyer, I think I would be a little bit more forceful if I think I've caught someone in a lie. I'd be a little bit more assertive, probably push them a bit more on that point. Again, politely, professionally, we're not banging hands on the table. We're not getting crazy. Yeah. Um, and if I saw that they were getting flustered or worked up, I'd ask for a break, et cetera, et cetera. As a corporate investigator, you do handle that differently. You may not necessarily even push them on that point. Maybe not on that occasion. You might let it go, come back, regroup, look at all the information that you've been told throughout that investigation or throughout that interview, I should say, and then go back on a later date and said, can I just go back and just check because you said X? And so therefore, did you mean X or did you mean Y? Right. Because I think as corporate investigators, what you have to remember is number one, your investigation may turn up with nothing, i.e. it may yeah. mean that person still has to work there. Uh-huh. So if you go in and you burn bridges and you damage relationships, that's a huge issue for your client. Yeah. And so you have to take those investigations and those in- interviews, approach them in a very different way huh. to how you would if you were in, you know, undertaking a criminal investigation because your investigation might turn up nothing. It might exonerate that person of all wrongdoing, but that person still has to work in that organization. And if you have gone in in such a hard way and, you know, rub them up the wrong way and damage the relationship, you haven't really done your client a favor. Right. Oh my gosh. Okay. Okay. They have to then repair all of those bridges that potentially you've burnt. Yeah. Wow. Okay. How can people get a hold of you? Because clearly you've got the goods here. (laughs) Tell us all about that. Okay, so I you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, my name is, is on the screen. So you can find me on LinkedIn. You can check out my website, um, parametricglobal.co.uk. Uh, um, and we are available to have discussions. And again, I think it's important that people realize that what we do at my organization is really around crisis management, is really about making sure that your organization isn't going around in a cycle. And it's right. making sure that we, you know, when you when you come to us and we help you with the situation, we can help you and bring other people in to help your organization actually have some long-term solutions to systemic issues. Um, but yeah, you can definitely send me an, a message on LinkedIn. I'm always happy to respond to that. Or you can go on our website and click on contact us and we will respond. Oh, wow. Well, thank you so much for coming on Fraud Busting. I hope my company never needs you except to come on another podcast. You are fantastic. Thanks for joining me. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it. I'll see you next time.